All right, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 today. If you've got your Bibles or your phone or whatever you've got, you can meet me there, Revelation chapter 2. And you can stay tuned with us this week. Uh, we don't know what's going to come up. It sounds like this week the province is going to at least lay out their plans for uh, moving back into unlocking again. And so we honestly don't have a clue what that means for churches or timing or anything. Uh, our numbers locally are a lot better, but we are still uh, in a, have always kind of been in this, a bit of a hot spot, and so we don't know if we will uh, be moving back into church shortly or whether it's going to be a little while longer. But as with everything, uh, we'll get you the information. As we get the information, we will adjust and adapt, and we will figure it out. We will innovate and be creative, and that will be how we continue to navigate this season together. We have often, um, in my ministry, we haven't done it at Meadowbrook so much, but throughout my ministry, um, I've just been in the habit of choosing a theme for a year and just taking some time to pray and seek the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want me to focus on for this year? So we did this last year for Meadowbrook, where as a staff, we took some time as an MMT to seek the Lord, and we called last year a year of next levels, and we uh, decided that actually in December of the year before, and we just really wanted to focus on what does it mean to go to the next level, to go deeper, to go further, and then uh, as COVID happened, we just had no idea all the different ways in which we were going to be required to find new ways to do things and to go to new levels and next levels, and so uh, as a staff, as an MMT with feedback from the board, uh, we've been taking some time to lay out what we're going to focus on here at Meadowbrook in 2021, and you'll see some of that in your AGM packages that will get sent out tomorrow. But for 2021, we have decided to call it a year of thriving. And so much of 2020 was just kind of surviving, was just kind of figuring out how do we adapt, how do we get through this, how do we hold on, how do we persevere, and that was necessary, that was needed. But what we want to focus on in 2021 is how do we thrive? in this season. And when we don't know how long things are going to happen or how long we might be in this zone or that zone or how long we might be wearing masks or how long we might be separate from one another and all the questions that we just don't know and that nobody knows and that nobody can really give us an answer on, we want our focus to be how are we going to thrive because of Jesus in our lives? Because the Apostle Paul talks about hardship and struggle and trials and he would say, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him. Like, we're not victims, we're not put upon, we are more than conquerors. The Apostle Paul would also say, I have learned the secret to being content no matter what the circumstances are. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the Apostle Paul did not have a very content and peaceful life. And he would talk about, I've been beaten, I've been whipped, I've been, uh, there's been assassination attempts, I've been in danger, I've been poor, I've been naked, I've been starving, I've been hot, I've been cold. Like, this was his life as an apostle. And in the midst of all of that, he says, I have learned how to find that place of contentment no matter what I'm facing. So Paul learned how to thrive, regardless of circumstance. And that's what we want to be focusing on. How are we thriving now? We spend a lot of focus on just surviving, but how are we going to thrive, regardless of what the season holds? And so we will be talking about that throughout the year, and we really want that to be our emphasis, because it is going to be very easy, if we want to, uh, to keep grumbling, to keep complaining, to keep struggling our way through it. And there's always probably going to be a bit of struggle on our way through it, but to be 
be able to say, okay, we can't control lots in life. That's part of what this season is teaching us. We are not in control of a lot of things. But when this season comes to an end, are we going to be more Christ-like? Are we going to be more humble? Are we going to be more worshipful? Are we going to be more grateful? Are we going to be more loving? Are we going to be more compassionate? Or are we going to be more bitter? Are we going to be more cynical? Are we going to be more self-focused? Like we want to be more like Jesus always. We want to be on that journey of being transformed more and more to become like the Son of God. And so we're not going to find ourselves in that place of thriving if we are just fighting against everything and annoyed about everything and angry and complaining and grumbling about everything. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, just rolling over necessarily or agreeing with everything that's going on or that we're not asking questions about what's going on. That's not what we're talking about. It's really an attitude. It's an outlook more than anything where we say, hey, Jesus Christ is in control of all things. If he wanted us out of the season by now, we would be out of the season by now. If he wanted Mass to disappear tomorrow, Mass would disappear tomorrow. Jesus Christ is Lord. So when we talk about, uh, you know, sort of submitting and leaning into the season, we're not saying we don't still have questions about stuff, we don't still advocate for things, but we're saying, I am putting myself in his hands trusting that he is always good and he is always working for our good. And so, again, we will come back to this regularly as we go through the year. How are we focusing on thriving in this time and just seeing what Jesus wants to do, the deep work that he is doing in all of us? And so as we go through our series, Apocalypse Now, as we walk through the book of Revelation... We're now moving into, we'll be in this next phase of the book until Easter at this point. And in the next number of weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at specific messages that Jesus speaks to the specific seven churches that this letter was originally written to. Jesus has a little blurb for each of the seven churches. Each of the seven churches is going through some stuff. And so Jesus meets them where they're at and speaks to them where they're at. And there's, in most of the churches, some good things that he commends them for uh, in most of the churches, there are some things that aren't good, that need some work and need some attention. So there's a mix of encouragement and correction and warning and promise. And so we're going to spend the next number of weeks going through that together. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Revelation chapter 2. And we're starting in verse 1. So in chapter 1, we've met Jesus, we've met John, we've sort of had the setup for the rest of the book, and now Jesus is getting specific with a message to each particular church. So, to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place." But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, or Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
So as we have been uh, hitting on the last few weeks, as we've been jumping into this series, there are seven churches in seven cities. This is the original audience of the book of Revelation. Jesus, in chapters two and three of the book, has a specific message for each of these churches. So we're starting in Ephesus today, uh, sort, of, sort of in the middle there towards the bottom, Ephesus, not far from Patmos, which is the island that John is writing this letter from. And so as Revelation goes out, it's going to go to these seven churches, but it probably was meant to go beyond that. It wasn't literally only for these cities, but each of these cities also would have been sort of the main church in the surrounding area. So there would have been probably other smaller churches in the towns around, and it was probably meant for everybody. It's sometimes what would be called a circulating letter. It was meant to go to the church in Ephesus, but not just Ephesus, these other churches, but not just these other cities, all the churches in the area. It was a message for everybody. And as we're going to see, even though this is a specific specific message for the church in Ephesus, there is stuff there that is meant for everybody. The end of each of these letters is, whoever has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. So even though this is specifically to Ephesus and what's going on there, that this is a message for the rest of the churches as well. There is something else in order for us to learn here. And so each of these specific messages to the seven churches has a bit of a rough format to it. It's not exactly a formula. But in each of these specific messages, it starts with, to the angel of the church in wherever. And then Jesus does an introduction of who he is. There's a revelation of Christ at the beginning. And then typically Jesus says, here are the things I commend you for, that you are doing well. Not every church gets a commendation, but most of them do. And then there's a correction. Jesus says, here are the things that I need you to fix. And not every church gets a correction, but most of them do. And then there is typically a, uh, a warning in there of what happens if you're not going to correct this behavior. But then there is also a promise of what will happen. There's a blessing involved as you persevere and as you respond and as you walk with him. So there is a bit of a rough uh, formula or format for each of these letters. And so the big question for us is, well, what do we do with this? Because we're not the church of Ephesus. We're the church of Meadowbrook. And we're not living 2,000 years ago. We're living in 2021. And we're not in Asia Minor. We're in Canada. So what does this mean for us today at Meadowbrook Church? And so we talked in the first week about how there are four basic different approaches to the book of Revelation. Some are preterist in their approach. They're the ones who believe that the book has primarily already been fulfilled in the past. There are futurists. And that's probably what we mostly grew up with in our culture. And that believes that this book is mostly going to happen in the end times, in the future. There are historicists, and they believe that Revelation began with these seven churches in that time period, but it has been unfolding all this time. And then there are idealists, and idealists believe that the book is not meant to be specific. It's just a metaphor for the coming return of Christ, the battle between good and evil, the perseverance of the church, and all those sorts of things. And so I told you the first week, we're not going to dig hard into any one of those in particular, but we will likely touch on all of them. So we need to know who these churches are in the past. If we're going to understand what the word of the Lord is to them and what it means for us, we have to dig into the fact that these were real churches going through real troubles at a real time in history. And so we need to dig into that preterist view of what did this mean for the church at the time. Uh, some in the historicist camp would believe that these seven churches represent sort of seven ages of the church that will go throughout time, starting then and ending with the return of Christ. So there's an Ephesian season of the church and a Smyrna season of the church and a Laodicean season 
Laodicean season of the church. Um, and that's a nice theory. I don't think you could really prove that or demonstrate that. I think for us, how this applies to us, if all scripture is God-breathed and useful, our question becomes, well, how is this useful then for us to encourage, to teach, to correct, and rebuke us? And I think our job as we approach this text is to say, where is Meadowbrook Church? in these encouragements, and where is Meadowbrook Church in these commendations and rebukes, and where are you personally? If Jesus were to come to you and say, here's what I see that I commend you for, here's what I see that needs correcting, uh, what would that look like for you? And so the point is not to dismiss this as, well, that's only for the Ephesian church 2,000 years ago. It's to say, where am I in this passage? Where is our church in this passage? Do we see some of the commendations? And if not, what needs to change? Are we maybe would be on the receiving end of the same rebuke? And if so, what needs to change? What does this mean as God speaks his word to us today through what he spoke to the church in Ephesus? So verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you heard the message last week, those words should sound familiar to you, that second part. And so every letter begins with, to the angel, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And there's actually lots of angels in the book of Revelation. The term shows up a lot. And so there's, a, uh, as with everything in Revelation, there's debate over what does this term mean? What does that thing mean? And so one of the questions that arises is what are these angels? It's never really explained. And so the word angel in the New Testament literally just means messenger. That's what the word that gets translated into angel means. And the implication, of course, is that it is a heavenly messenger, but it does just mean messenger. And so some have thrown out there that perhaps to the angel in the church of Ephesus, it might mean a human messenger, and it might be more like to the pastor, right? To the one who's going to come and then share the word with the rest of the congregation. And so there are some scholars who think that that's what that means. And it's, it's just because it's not really clear exactly what the angel of the church is. Um, the only problem with that viewpoint is anywhere else in Revelation where that word angel shows up, it means an angel. It means a divine being of some kind. And we know from scripture there are angels that fight, there are angels that worship, there are angels that bring revelation from heaven. And so it would seem that these angels here are the angels that are bringing a revelation from heaven. And it's kind of cool to think about that, hey, Meadowbrook might have an angel. Like there might be an angel, like a guardian angel type figure that God has appointed over Meadowbrook Church, just as was perhaps appointed over the Ephesian Church. Again, those things are not crystal clear here, uh, but it seems to be that God is speaking through his angel. The angel is bringing the revelation to the church, and so that is why uh, the, the angelic beings are involved in these particular passages that we'll be in for the next few weeks. And so it's coming specifically to Ephesus. Ephesus of the seven churches of the seven cities is actually the one biblically we know the most about because it shows up in the Bible. Acts 18 and Acts 19 have the story of when the gospel first came to Ephesus. And so the Bible says that Paul comes to Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila and he comes and he preaches the gospel, but then he leaves pretty quickly and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. So there's been a tradition that Priscilla and Aquila were the ones to kind of nurture the church and get it going after Paul left. And 
And so Priscilla and Aquila, we see throughout the book of Acts, it's a husband and wife team that taught and mentored in the early church. And it's not crystal clear, but suggested uh, that they were involved in planting and nurturing the Ephesian church and were part of that there. Um, the book of Ephesians, of course, is written to this church in Ephesus. And first and second Timothy as well. Timothy was an elder of the Ephesian church. And so Paul writes to Timothy with pastoral advice. Here's how you uh, manage the problems. And the Ephesian church had a lot of problems. There was a lot of struggle going on in that church that we see in first and second Timothy. So biblically, we have a, a pretty decent picture of what was going on in that particular church up until this time. The city of Ephesus itself was the main city in the province. It was, uh, they didn't really use the language of capital city, but that's kind of what it was. It was a city that was near the ocean, and so it was a commercial center, it was a port, it was a cultural center, it was a government center, and most importantly for what we're going to get into today, uh, it was a center of idol worship. And most of these cities had that going on. And so Rome rules the world at this time. Rome is firmly in charge of the civilized world of the Bible uh, times and where the apostles and the early church lived and breathed. And in Rome at this time, you didn't just honor the emperor. You didn't just submit to the emperor. You actually worshipped the emperor. That if you were a good Roman citizen, you would actually go and offer sacrifices to worship the emperor as a god. And so they did not just believe that their emperor was put there by God. They believed that their emperor actually was God on the earth. And so this is something in Revelation that's going to come up again and again. That emperor worship was everywhere. Ephesus was a center of emperor worship. And Christians in the early church really struggled because you're not allowed to worship anyone but Jesus, right, as a follower of Jesus. And so what happens when a law gets passed that says you must now worship the emperor? What happens when a law gets passed that says if you don't worship the emperor, no one will buy or sell to you? and you won't be able to have a business. You won't be able to provide for your family. And so the early church is struggling in this world where they are legitimately being significantly persecuted because they refuse to bow a knee to the emperor. They're not willing to go down that road. And so there is this pressure constantly uh, that is always there. Something else we know about Ephesus as well, uh, and we can read about it biblically in Acts chapter 19, is that the temple of Artemis was there. So this is a computer rendering of it. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was the place where Artemis or Diana, a goddess in the Greek and Roman religions, was worshipped. She was the goddess of the hunt. And so it was a huge building for the time. And people would come from, honestly, all over the world in pilgrimage to worship Artemis at this temple. And in Acts 19, when the Apostle Paul comes and starts preaching Jesus, the, the proprietors of this place and the ones who made the idols got really upset and started a riot because they didn't like the fact that Paul was coming in saying there's only one God and we worship him and we worship his son Jesus because they were worried about the attention being taken away from Artemis. And so there was this, this major idol worship going on. Uh, there were lots of like, like thousands of priests and priestesses that worked there. It was a very female dominated religion. There was shrine prostitution going on uh, where you would go and pay someone to sleep with them as part of your religious exercise. And so there's all sorts of this just hanging over the city. And so what we're going to see with each of these seven churches that we're going to get into, uh, there is a, a constant call 
And it would even be, I think, a major theme in the book of Revelation that says, number one, keep persevering in your walk with Jesus. Number two, do not be corrupted by the world around you. Do not get sucked in to the culture around you. And part of the rebuke that happens with many of these churches is Jesus saying, he doesn't use these words, but Jesus essentially saying, the church is starting to look like the city that it's in. Not in a good way. The church is starting to take on some of the qualities of the culture around it. And that is part of the concern that Revelation is, hey, don't let yourself get sucked into the world around you. Don't compromise the gospel because of the world around you. And so for these people who are living in this world where they're trying to follow Jesus, but there's emperor worship being pressured and there's Artemis worship being pressured and there's all this temptation around them to be like the rest of the group and to, to for the sake of your business, you got to do this. For feeding your children, you got to do this. There's this constant call that says, no, don't get sucked into that. You know, that we're all living in a culture. We're all living in the world. But don't let the world compromise your convictions. Don't let the world compromise the gospel. And of course, that message is no different for us today at Meadowbrook Church. It's the same struggle. Do not let the world compromise what the word of God calls you to do. And I, I don't even know if it's possible to totally avoid it while we live in this sinful, fallen world. But to just to always be aware of where is the world creeping in to our theology? Where is the world creeping in to our practices? Where is the world creeping into our convictions? Where does our cultural views on things start to infiltrate what we believe as Christ followers? All right, thanks for bearing with us, everybody. Uh, for really, like, the only time ever since we've been doing this live, we had just a major technical glitch, and so we had to stop there. So, uh, yeah, sorry about that. And our team is awesome and is working so hard to make sure worship is coming every week, and they're fixing the problems. So we're just going to carry on with the service. Uh, I will probably not do this seamlessly as I jump into my sermon point, but we're going to carry on with the rest of the message as is. Everyone in the room is going to get to hear some of this for a second time, because I didn't know that the glitch had happened. So I just kept talking for a while until Xavier told me to stop. So we were, just as that sound got lost, talking about uh, the Temple of Artemis and just the, the natural temptation in the seven churches of Revelation and in our church today and any church today, that natural temptation to take on whatever's going on in the world around us and to just ultimately uh, the pull to compromise, the pull to uh, give up our convictions, the pull to look more like the world around us. And so there's lots of conversation in our time about relevance and how is the gospel relevant to the culture around us. And there is a point to that that is good in that you have to communicate communicate in a way that the culture can receive, but we also want to be aware of the danger of any time we're worried too much about re relevance, then we might start to say things like, well, we're not going to preach on certain things, or we're going to soften the edge off of that thing that Jesus said, or we're going to make the gospel more palatable, and we're going to compromise our convictions. And so for the seven churches in Revelation, there was this pull to worship the emperor. There was this pull to worship idols. There was this pull to deny Jesus, and it was very, very obvious obvious and in your face. Our pulls might not be that dramatic, but the question for us is, where are we being pulled towards the world? Where is the world's attitude, the cultural attitude starting to creep into the church? Where might we be compromising? Where might we be 
pulled away from the conviction of the gospel and the conviction of the word of God. So that's a warning for all of us constantly. It was a warning for the churches back then, and it is a warning for us now. Don't take on the culture of the world around you to the point where you are actually denying Christ or denying the gospel or softening your conviction. Don't get caught up in that. As Jesus introduces himself in this letter, every letter starts with him bringing a revelation about who he is. This should sound familiar for anyone who heard the message last week. Jesus says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars and who walks amongst the seven lampstands. And so we learned last week that the seven stars represent the seven angels of the churches and the seven lampstands represent the churches. That Jesus stands and walks amongst his church. And it's a beautiful and a powerful picture. And just the suggestion that the churches are in his presence. He is in the church's presence. Jesus stands amongst his people. He is there with them. Jesus is amongst us. And there's this beautiful picture of who he is. Jesus moves into some encouragement. Verse 2 and 3. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And so it's cool. I love this part that when Jesus is looking at the church of Ephesus, he says, hey, here's the stuff that you're doing well. Here are things that I commend you for. There's encouragement there that Jesus in art is often personified as one sitting on the throne, one who is crowned and often is holding books or holding scrolls because scripture says our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, but also says that our deeds are recorded in his books. And so it is all in preparation of judgment day. And so when Jesus is saying, I know your deeds, this is the king of the universe saying, hey, church, I know you. I know who you are. I know what you're up to. And he starts by saying, this is the good stuff that's going on. You are persevering. You are enduring. You are testing things. You are determining what is truth and what is false. You're not tolerating wickedness amongst you. You are not growing weary. You are enduring hardships. And that theme of endurance and perseverance shows up in Revelation over and over and over again. It's one of the great themes. I would say it's one of the great calls of Revelation of Christ to his church is don't give up. Keep going. Whatever you're going through, keep going. Don't stop. Don't get exhausted. Keep going. And so Jesus starts off with this cheerleading, and it's so crucial because we all need that. And I love knowing that my God is a cheerleader, that that is one of the things that he does, that when life is hard and life is challenging, life is long, life is difficult, we all need someone to come alongside us and cheer us on. And that's one of the things that Jesus does. It's one of the things that the Bible says we are supposed to do for one another. We all need encouragement and we are called to encourage one another, to help one another keep going, to motivate and to build up and to pour into and to support. And so there is encouragement going on in this passage. Now, Jesus also has some criticism for the church. And so I don't have a verse for this or a statistics for this. It's just something I have observed in human behavior, that when it comes to encouragement and criticism, we need both of those things. We all need to be cheered on. We all need to be built up. But we need that constructive, loving, gracious criticism as well. We need someone to come along and say, here's an area that needs improvement. If we didn't have the encouragement side of 
of things. Life would just be so much harder. And there's just enough in life to slow us down and weigh us down and to be challenging. And so we need to lift one another up. We need to spur one another on. But if the criticism doesn't happen, then sometimes we don't get better. We need someone to acknowledge, here's something that needs fixing, and you need to work on that. So there is encouragement and there's criticism. We need both of them. They're both very important. I have observed that most of us naturally lean towards one way or the other. We're either natural encouragers or we're natural critics. And so, again, neither one is wrong. The way in which we do it maybe can be wrong, but we need both sides of it. So the question is, if you're a more natural encourager and you just love building people up and making them feel good and helping to motivate them and helping to support them, the challenge for you is, in order to be more Christ-like, where are you also speaking to problems? Where are you also in love speaking the truth, maybe when it's a little bit harder? Because if you're only speaking encouragement all the time, you are not Christ-like in the fullness of who Christ is, because we see Christ doing both. So if you're an encourager, where can you stretch yourself? And it's, it can be hard, because encouragers tend to be kind of nice, gentle, gracious people. They don't like having unpleasant conversations. They don't like pointing things out. But to be like Jesus means we have to do that sometimes. And on the flip side, if you are more critically minded and you tend to see what's wrong with things and what needs work and what needs fixing and what needs improvement, that's not a bad thing. But where are you encouraging then? Where are you doing the other side? Because if all you're doing is criticizing, then you are not Christ-like in the fullness of what he does. Because he doesn't just criticize, he brings the encouragement side as well. So I think personally, everybody needs to grow in one of these areas. Everybody needs to work on something. So what does that look like then for you to stretch yourself beyond your natural tendencies. If all you're doing is encouraging, you're not helping other people reach the fullness of what they could be. If all you're doing is criticizing, you are not helping people reach the fullness of what they could be. Both are Christ-like. And so what Christ-likeness do you need to grow in? And how can you stretch yourself even today, even with a text or a phone call or something? Where can you stretch yourself there? So Jesus has a correction a criticism, a rebuke in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And so much has been made of this Ephesian passage that Jesus has a lot of things to say to commend them for. Uh, depending on how you group the phrasings together, between five and eight encouragements to say this is the stuff that's going well in your church, and he only has the one thing to rebuke. And so it's been suggested that that's maybe a pretty good balance of what we should be living our lives at, that we are generally supportive and encouraging, and yet at times we do need to bring up the criticisms. We do need to point those things out. Um, it's maybe trickier if the reverse ratio is true and we're giving tons of criticism and never speaking anything that's encouraging or uplifting. I've told the story before when we got to Sudbury to pastor at the church there. I had preached the Sunday morning to candidate. They'd voted. We'd been voted in. And so afterwards, we were just mingling and saying hi, and everyone was hugging us and congratulating us and welcoming us to Sudbury. And there was one guy there who came up to me, and he shook my hand. He introduced himself, and he said, hi, I'm so-and-so. And he said, I'm glad you're here. And he said, you'll never hear from me unless there's a problem. And then he turned, and he walked away. And 
I think he meant that encouraging, weirdly enough, but like there should be nobody in our life that we only hear from when they're bringing up a problem or bringing up a concern or bringing up a, cr a criticism. If there's people in your lives and they're only hearing from you when you're pointing out areas of improvement, they're never hearing the encouraging side, that's probably not a great balance. But as we see, Jesus also points out something that needs fixing. And even in this passage, even though there's a lot of things that he says are good and he only has the one thing to correct. The thing that he has to correct is kind of a doozy. It's a big one. And so Jesus does both things. And if so, if your view of God is he is always just happy with you and happy with everything that you do, there's never any correction or rebuke from him, then your view of God is incomplete. If your view of God is just that he's always thrilled with everything you're doing, then you're missing something because one of the things he does is rebuke. Now, the flip side of that, if your view of God is he's always just on everything about you that you're doing wrong and he's always just unhappy with you and always just criticizing, that is also incomplete. That is also an incomplete view of God. So there is a practice from the Middle Ages called the examine and the word comes from examination and it's really really simple and basically it involves once a day you get quiet before the Lord just to find yourself in a moment where you can just be quiet and you just ask these two questions there's lots of different formats to it but this is the one that I like and it gets to the heart of what we're seeing in this passage today is you ask the Lord what have I done today that has pleased you and what have I done today that has displeased you and take a break in between those two questions, but ask first, what have I done today that has pleased you? And then just sit in the silence for a few moments, see what comes to mind, see what memories from the day come to pass. And as that has happened, what have I done today that has displeased you? And watch what happens and see what comes to mind and see what attitudes or words or deeds come into your head. And it's just, it's a spiritual examination where you present yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I am open to both from you. I want your commendation and I also also want your rebuke. I want your correction. And if we don't have the correction, we often don't get better. And if we don't have the encouragement, we don't have the motivation to keep going. We need both. And so Jesus obviously does both, and we can ask him what that is. So Jesus says, I hold this against you. I am not pleased with this. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Your version might say you have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you've fallen. And so the suggestion is, is that whether it's their love of Jesus that's fallen apart or their love of others that's fallen apart, it doesn't really matter because when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And the second commandment, the second greatest one is just like it, love your neighbor like yourself. And so one of the ways we love God is by loving our neighbor. And so whatever the specifics are, somehow the Ephesian church has fallen away from that love of God and potentially that love of neighbor as well. And yet they were there once. Jesus says, look how far you've fallen. Apparently, this was a church that was head over heels in love. Apparently, this was a church where the love of God was very obvious. But look how far you have fallen. So repent and do the things that you did at first. And sometimes when this passage is talked about, uh, there's a talk about kind of that, you know, that lovey-dovey honeymoon phase. I mean, it's romantic, but not just romantic. Like there's, there's, whether it's a new friendship or a new job or a new church or a new something, there's always a season where just everything seems wonderful and love is really, really easy. And so even if it's just a new friendship and you just find someone you really click and connect with and uh, it's just a lot of fun and it's great to know someone and 
get to know them better and you have things in common and you have fun when you hang out and it's all really, really good. And then eventually over time, you kind of settle into more of a routine and you start to see each other's warts and flaws and, and you just kind of settle into more of a life. And so the talk when it comes to marriage is, well, you have a honeymoon phase and then it's just really easy to kind of settle into life together. And we in marriage, you're always wanting to try and keep something of that honeymoon, you know, still there, something fresh, something uh, romantic, something passionate, because it is really easy just to get into a rut of doing life together. And it seems to be, perhaps, that's a little bit of what has happened in this church. And it's certainly easy for that to happen in our relationship with Jesus. When you think of when I first came to know Jesus, what that was like, and just how close he seemed, and how everything seemed different, and how much I loved him, and how much I dug into his word, and how I just counted down the days until Sunday morning when I could gather with his people and worship. And, and like any relationship, it seems that our walk with Jesus also can have seasons. It can have times where we feel very close, and times where we feel further away. And like you can't entirely keep a honeymoon going, like for a 50-year marriage, just in the sense of like on your honeymoon, it's just the two of you, right? You're on vacation, you're not working, there's no kids around, right? Like that's a very specific context. Uh, then you have to live life. And so something does shift a little bit. But the point is, hey, even though you can't stay in the honeymoon phase per se, make sure you're not losing the romance. Make sure you're not losing the passion. Even though your relationship is going to change and mature and develop, and those things can be very, very good, make sure you don't lose that love, that passion that you had at the very beginning. And so Jesus' rebuke of this church is, you were once incredibly in love with me. You were once incredibly loving. You have fallen so far. And what's interesting about this church is that in the commendations, Jesus says, you are working hard. You are enduring hardship. You are, you are tolerate, or you're not tolerating wicked people. You're testing apostles. You're proving them false. Like, this is a church that is devoted and this is a church that is very committed to truth and the search of truth and finding truth. But apparently they have lost love in the midst of that. And that should be jarring a little bit. Because I think in modern Western, especially North American church, like we have access to more truth than ever before, right? In terms of Bible studies and right now media and podcasts and books and everything. Like we have so much there to help us in our commitment to truth. If we want to find out what does the Bible say and we want to go deeper, there is a world. There's just a, almost a limitless world of resources to help us go deeper in truth. And of course, truth is something we're supposed to be doing. We spent the whole fall talking about that. How do we know the truth and understand the truth? How do we be truth seekers? Truth is not the problem, but this church apparently was very committed to truth, but had lost love. And that's a big problem because the greatest commandment wasn't actually find the truth. The greatest commandment was love the Lord your God with everything in you and love your neighbor as yourself. That was the greatest commandment. And they had apparently lost the greatest commandment. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then he goes on to talk about what love is. And you could add any other thing and keep the spirit of this. Whatever we are doing for God, whatever we are doing in his name, whatever even spiritual gifts we are using, if the love piece is missing, then the gift doesn't matter. It's nothing. You have nothing. You gain nothing. Love is it. Love is the foundation of all of it. So I don't care if you have the whole Bible memorized. If you don't love God and your neighbor, it doesn't matter. Love is the foundation of the gospel. It is Jesus loving us enough to come to earth and die for us and raise for us, loving us enough to come save us when we couldn't save ourselves. Love is the whole thing. And so it doesn't matter what gifts we have. It doesn't even matter what truth we have if we don't have love. And the point is not throw away your gifts or don't dig into your gifts or don't search for truth. It's do those things with love, out of love, in devotion to love for God and love to neighbor. And in our context as a Christ follower, even love to your enemy. So Jesus says, you have fallen so far, repent and do the things you did at first. Repent, the word literally means change, transform. Stop doing what you're doing. Turn around. Go in a different direction, right? You are doing lots of good things, but you're missing the love piece, church. And you're not, uh, you were once, you know, perhaps even identified as a really loving church, but you have fallen so far from that. So turn it around. Repent. Go back and do the things you did at first. When you think about your walk with Jesus, when you think about times where you were just especially in love with him, especially close to him, especially in his presence, what did that look like? Go back and do those things, Jesus says. Go find your way back to that place of love. And it's not like, again, in a marriage where we might say, you know what, we're going to do a date night. We're going to carve out time and have a date night. And it's not the same date that we had 20 years ago when we first met, maybe. But it's going to be time that we carve out to love one another and connect with one another. So, like, what did you do when you were closest to Jesus in your life? What did that look like? Jesus says, go back to that. Go back to the places where you met with him in those early days, that, those honeymoon phases of your life, those phases where you were unusually close to him and felt his presence. Go back to that. Jesus says in verse 5, the rebuke is now moving into a warning. If you do not repent, if you don't turn this around, if you don't get back to that place of love, then I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so that sounds scary. If you don't repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. As with all things Revelation, debate over what that means. Um, for those who would say there's debate in the church for 2,000 years, can one lose their salvation? Are we once saved, always saved? Or is it possible that the salvation, you could fall away from Jesus and actually lose your salvation? Both sides have reasonable scriptures that they point to to support their points. And so for those who believe, yes, you could fall away from Christ, this would be a verse that they would use to support that, that perhaps what that means is Jesus might actually remove your salvation. If you don't come back to falling in love with him, that would be something that could happen. That's not crystal clear. The lampstands represent the churches we know. And so I think probably in context, a better understanding is that there is something about you as a church are going to lose your favor. You're going to lose your position. 
uh, as one of the main churches in the area, that's probably a bit more in line, although I don't know for sure. I don't think anybody can say for sure. But either way, that's a bit, I read that verse to my wife this week, and she said, that makes me tremble, that verse, that Jesus says, I might come and remove you. Um, King David would cry out in his sin, cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord, right? Don't, don't let me leave your presence. It's possible that that's what this means, that Jesus maybe permanently or for a time is going to remove his presence from this church and leave them to struggle and stumble along on their own. We don't really know. But either way, it is a trembling verse. It should be. And it's a reminder in general. Like these are saved believers. They are washed in the blood of the lamb. They are uh, touched by his grace. They are born again followers of Jesus, uh, that does not mean that there aren't still potentially consequences if we persist in our sin. If we persist in our sin, there is a time where the word says that God is patient, he is long-suffering, he is slow to anger, but there is also a point where if we persist in our rebellion, if we persist in our sinfulness, that consequences do fall. Discipline does come. Judgment does come. And so that is something that is supposed to make us go, whew, okay, that's scary. What does that mean for me? How seriously am I taking the sin in my life? Am I repenting and am I turning away? Last point, uh, sorry, I lied, not the last point. <laughs> not even close to the last point. A couple more points. Last point on this verse. Uh, the, Nicolai the Nicolaitans or Nicolaitans uh, get mentioned here, and we don't really know anything about them. Jesus says, you hate the practices of this group, which I also hate. Uh, I don't know this book. I'm not recommending this book, but I just throw it up there to say there's lots of books about it. There's lots of teaching about it where people say this is clearly what this group was. This is clearly what they believed. I think it's all nonsense, personally, because we just don't know that much about it. It's a name that shows up in this verse. In other verses, to the other churches, as we will see. Uh, it seems to get tied into the Old Testament name of Balaam and Jezebel, who were idolaters, uh, who were sort of had a veneer of being a person of God, but also compromised a lot with the world and with idolatry and with sin. And so uh, we don't really know anything about them. I think if we were to take a very broad, educated guess, is that these were probably Christians, or at least people who called themselves Christians, but who were very much compromising with the world. I think broadly that's a pretty good guess. Uh, so they had sort of the veneer of Christianity, but they were probably tied into idol worship, sexual immorality, and different things. They were compromising with the paganism around them. And that would make sense that that would be something that Jesus would hate. And that would make sense that that's something that we're supposed to hate. That if we're looking at the purity of the gospel, we're not compromising it with the other religions around us and trying to make that work. Last verse. Whoever has ears. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so it ends so hopeful, right? Even though there has been a rebuke and a pretty stern one, and there's been a warning if you don't repent, the end is hopeful. To the one who is victorious, you will eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice that it's churches, plural. It's not let him hear what the Spirit says to this one church in Ephesus. And that suggests that these letters are not just meant for one church. It's written to one church, but there is good that all the churches can learn from studying this. It's not just about one letter to one church in one time. And because we believe this is Scripture, that makes sense. Because all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for all of us. If you have ears, then hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The implication is 
make sure you're paying attention. Right? You've all heard it this morning, but that doesn't mean you've been paying attention. We've all heard the scripture today. That doesn't mean we're going to do anything with it. It's that, hey, if you've got ears, open up your ears. Open up your mind. Open up your heart. Open up your understanding to not just hear this and go, yeah, 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 but to hear it and let it sink in. What is the Spirit saying to you today through these words? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you through the Word of God this morning? The promise to the one who is victorious. And that type of phrase will show up in each of the letters as well. To the one who overcomes, to the one who perseveres, to the one who is victorious, to all of these who keep going, who respond, to who will press into God, who do not give up. In this case, there is a promise given. They're all, every church has a promise given. In this case, it's that you'll get to eat from the tree of life. And the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, that is heaven. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, that there is a tree there that when you ate it, you lived forever. And Adam and Eve actually were not allowed to eat from it when they sinned. When they sinned, God said, we actually can't let people eat from the tree of life. Now that evil has infected humanity, we can't let evil in humanity live forever. And so at that point, we started dying. As Sarah said earlier, the wages of sin is death. That's why God said if humanity lives eternally while sinful, then sin's just always going to exist. And God's plan is I want to actually eradicate evil from this world. And so Jesus comes and he dies for us to pay the price for our sin. Jesus rises from the dead in order to overcome death. And now the invitation is now that your sin has been washed away, now you can come and eat. Now you can live eternally. Now that evil has been, has been brought out of you, now that you've been forgiven of your sin, now that that burden has been lifted, now you are invited to come and partake of the tree of life. Now you can. Adam and Eve couldn't. Sinful man can't. But because we are forgiven, now we can. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done today. So as we get ready to head into communion, as we talk about uh, a year of thriving for our church, if Jesus were to judge your life right now, and he were to start by saying, here's what I commend you for, what would that look like? What would that look like in light of what he said to the Ephesians? Was there anything there that he might say about you? And the point is not to say, oh, no, no, I'm so sinful. No, 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 I'm so worthless. Like, listen, Jesus sees all of you. And in these letters to these churches, he commends them. He encourages them. There's one church that gets none, but all the other churches get encouragement and condemnation, or encouragement, not condemnation in the first part. They get, here's what's going well. He commends them. So as you examine your own life and you think about uh, what that looks like, what would Jesus say to you? How would he commend you today? And then on the flip side of that, if you were to say, okay, where might the Lord be displeased with me? Where might there be discipline or, or a consequence coming if I don't turn this around? Right? Like where am I taking my sin seriously and not just making excuses for it and not saying I'm not so bad, I don't do anything too bad, I just have this little thing. No, like to be honest and say, where am I displeasing the Lord? To let him answer that question in you. And as we talk about a year of thriving, is your relationship with Jesus thriving right now? Is your love for him thriving? Is your love for others thriving? And I'm sure we can always 
always do better. But in terms of where you're at today, is there anything where the word of the Lord to you today is like, hey, get back to the things you did at first. Get back to that place of intimacy with him. Get back to that place where the love was real and you were close. And if you've never had that with Jesus, then maybe this is the year you focus on that and say, Lord, I just want to love you. I want to be close to you. And it's not rocket science. It's the things that we know we should be doing of digging into the word and spending time in worship and spending time in prayer and finding quiet in our life where we can connect with him, of connecting with other believers and learning through them. What is it going to take for your walk with Jesus to thrive in 2021 and loving others? And loving others is a bit tricky in lockdown and stay at home because it requires a little more effort. It used to be to connect. All you had to do was show up at church on a Sunday morning. You could connect with a people. It was great. When you don't have that option, it takes a little more effort, but it's as simple as picking up your phone. Don't just wait for someone to connect with you. You do some connecting. You reach out. You do something for your neighbor. You take a step in order to reach out to them, to thrive in love of God, to thrive in love of one another. What steps do you need to take even this week, not putting it off, but starting now? What does that look like? And as we head into communion, uh, it's a good verse to focus on as we come into communion because, you know, the Bible says we don't love him because we're so great and loving, right? Because we are, we are sinners. We are selfish by nature. But the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. He loved us. He invited us. He died for us. He rose for us. He opened the way for us, and he invites us back. And communion becomes the place where we celebrate that, and we acknowledge, hey, there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. There is nothing that we offer that brings us to salvation, that he loved us first. And out of his great love for us, he invites us back into that loving family reconciliation relationship with him. He invites us back to the table. And when we come to the table together, whether we're in the same room, whether we're spread out, we are still coming to the same table. We are coming for the same reason, because Jesus Christ so loved the world that he came and died for us, that he came and gave up everything for us, that he put us ahead of himself and laid his life down because he loved us so much, as has been said, because he couldn't stand the thought of eternity without us. He came and he saved us for his glory and for our salvation. When we come to the communion table, we always take a moment to pause because scripture says a person should pause and examine themselves before they come. So while the band plays quietly, we are just going to pause here and we're just going to reflect. Maybe you're reflecting on the message today. Lord, is there anything I've done that has displeased you that I need to repent of, that I need to acknowledge right now? Is there anyone I need to forgive? Is there anyone I need to pray for? Is there anything I just need to cast my cares on you and leave with you? Let's pause here for a moment. We'll take a moment to do that, and then we'll partake together, and we will respond with worship. Lord, we come to your table 
because you loved us for no other reason than because you loved us. Not that we loved you, but you loved us. We love you because you first loved us, that you loved us so much that you sent your only son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank you, Lord, that the door has been opened to the tree of life for us. Thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to encourage us and spur us on. You also love us enough to correct us, that we would get the sin out of our lives. We would throw off the sin that so easily entangles, that we would be free to run after you in freedom. Thank you for the love that you have shown at the cross, Lord. And we just refresh ourselves and remind ourselves of that love today as we come to the table with great gratitude, as we take the elements in our hands. For what I received from the Lord, I also made known to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me in love, in his love, and with love for him. Let's eat together. In the same manner after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns in his love and with love for him. Let's drink together. So we love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. One of the ways that we show our love for him is with worship. And so we're going to close with worship now. The words will be on the screen. As we've been saying, don't just sing to the screen. Even if you have to read the words, don't just focus on what's going on. Sing it to him today. Sing it for him as the worship team leads us this morning. <laughs> 